What is it you want, Barry? What do you want? You, you want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it and pull it down. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, dying times here. Come with me if you want to live. That's it, man. Game over, man. Game over. The Force will be with you. Always. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to 20th Century Geek. I'm your regular host, Scott Weatherly. And this episode, we'll be going back to our in-depth reviews of key Batman stories and going deep on Batman Arkham Asylum, Serious House on a Serious Earth. 1989 was the year of Batmania. The bat symbol was everywhere, and everyone was talking about Batman. The decade had been good to The Dark Knight so far, with two milestone books in The Dark Knight Returns and The Killing Joke, as well as a controversial interactive reader poll to decide the fate of Jason Todd's Robin. However, it was Batman's first major jump to the silver screen that was creating all the buzz. Tim Burton's dark fairy tale take on the Cape Crusader established a visual for the dedicated and casual fan alike. This model of Batman and Gotham would be used as the base plate for the hugely successful and still excellent Batman the Animated Series. These are the mainstream versions that thrived in pop culture, but DC was looking to expand and experiment with the character in the comics. In the early 1980s, DC, and more specifically, DC editor Karen Berger, started looking internationally for new talent, to bring a new perspective to the books. One of the first people to be drafted in was Alan Moore. He was given a chance on the then-failing Swamp Thing series, the thought being, if it was good, sales would increase, if not, it was failing anyway, so no one cared. Luckily, he and the book became a huge success. After this, DC and Berger went looking for more talent in Britain. In the next wave, they were introduced to a host of talented creators, among them Grant Morrison and Dave McKean. Morrison was given a four-issue miniseries on Animal Man, which then became a 26-issue run. Feeling confident after this started to expand, Morrison wanted to push his creative boundaries, and his look with DC. He contacted DC and proposed a Batman story, something inspired by European comics rather than the typical American fare. He was expecting them to reject it, but maybe give him something else instead. He was shocked to find that they were not just interested, they wanted to push this book as a prestige book, further developing the notion of graphic novels as literature and art in their own right. Morrison pictured the book as being hyper-detailed and realistic, possibly drawn by an artist such as Brian Bolland. Berger had a slightly different vision and partnered Morrison with highly stylized artist Dave McKean. McKean was not particularly interested in doing a superhero book, having worked on more experimental books previously. He was not about to bring a hyper-realistic style to this book. Morrison had already written the script and penciled some storyboards to give McKean, who took these and added his own twist. The result was Batman, Arkham Asylum, a serious house on serious earth. 
a shock to a fan base who were not used to a book that looked like this and could be read in so many different ways. Now we've covered the book's secret origins, let's dive into the book and discuss what hides in the dark shadows of Arkham Asylum. Let's start with the plot. Before I do, I need to mention that this episode will provide huge spoilers for this story. Moreover, some of the points I'll be making require knowledge of the story, so if you haven't read it, please pause this podcast and go and read the book, then come back and enjoy the discussion. Okay? Let's go. Batman is called to Arkham Asylum by Commissioner Gordon. The inmates have rioted and taken control of the asylum. The Joker has asked for Batman to be there or he'll start killing hostages. Understanding the Joker's unpredictability, Batman enters the building to bring order back to the asylum. Once inside, Batman is set the task of making his way through the building pursued by the inmates. If he survives, the hostages will be released. In doing so, Batman is forced to confront his own psychosis, as well as the physical dangers lurking in every shadow. In the past, we learn about Amadeus Arkham and the tragic events that led to the creation of Arkham Asylum and his eventual incarceration inside the Institute. When Batman emerges from the building's maze of corridors, he is deduced that one of the asylum's doctors instigated the riot in order to get Batman on site. Having found the crazed writings of Amadeus Arkham and believing Batman is part of the building's reason for being, a herald for the entity that is Arkham Asylum, destined to bring it more inmates and keep its evil fed. Defeating the Doctor, Batman leaves Arkham Asylum, a little unsure if he belongs in the world or in the Asylum. Okay, so that was a high-level plot overview to give you the general points. Now, let's enter the Asylum and consider the different ways this book can be interpreted. As with my review of The Dark Knight Returns, I'll be breaking this review into different sections to discuss specific topics. Let's get started. Batman Over the Rainbow Let's talk about Batman. Bruce Wayne, a normal man that has trained his body to the point of human perfection, a finely honed tool to accomplish his mission against what he sees as injustice. He continues to push himself past what should be humanly possible time and time again. The question is, while his body is a perfect tool, what state of mind is needed to drive someone to do these things night after night? Grant Morrison seems to have changed his mind about the answer to this question over time. In his Batman run that started in 2006, he developed a zen and fully in control Dark Knight, a Batman that has planned for pretty much anything and is driven by determination and self-confidence based on years of experience. However, I posit that the Batman he gives us in Arkham Asylum is far from zen and psychologically in control. I would go so far as to suggest that this version of Batman is riddled with self-doubt, regret and would actually be more at home being treated in the Asylum than invading it. The first indication of this in the book is how the world outside the asylum, all the conversations with Batman and Gordon and the call with the Joker are in black and white. It's not until he enters the asylum that the book moves to colour for the Batman time period. This harkens back to The Wizard of Oz and how Dorothy's life in Kansas is filmed in black and white, 
However, Oz is presented in Technicolor. I view this as Batman's point of view, how he views Gotham City as the, and the people in it. He doesn't see himself as part of the normal world and the regular lives in it. His world is that of the crazies and villains. This is the world in which he feels more alive and control. I've read how this can be interpreted as depicting the boundary between order and chaos. I can understand this interpretation, but feel that the psychological reading has more support later in the book. The second thing to highlight is Batman's response to the psychological pressure of moving through the asylum. It's clear that he is under pressure, but Batman responds with a flashback to his parents' murder. The usual depiction of this event is of a loving family ripped apart by tragedy at a moment of family bonding doting parents enjoying the night out with their son. In this case, however, the moment is depicted as a moment of confrontation. Bruce's mother is chastising him for being a coward and not being able to watch the film. She threatens to leave him if he doesn't grow up. Of course, within minutes of this snapshot, she does indeed leave him. The question is, is this a true depiction of the events or how Bruce remembers it through his guilt and grief? Either way, the response to this flashback is just as severe as the memory itself. Instead of taking a few seconds to breathe through the moment and move on, as a centred and in control Batman would do, he forces a broken piece of glass through his hand, revelling in the pain and the distraction it gives him from the memory. So is this memory triggered by the moment? Does he always carry it with him? Or is this moment influenced by a malevolent force within the building. Again, both options highlight that Batman is emotionally and psychologically vulnerable. Morrison is depicting a Batman ravaged by guilt and remorse and is barely holding on to reality and his own sanity. Following the journey through the asylum, we see a destination for Batman's arc. He has met with many of the inmates of the institution and has come to the conclusion that insanity may be the best option for some people, that it's the best possible coping mechanism. In the book, we have seen the state of Harvey Dent, Two-Face, and how the treatment he has received is possibly making him worse. At the end of the book, Batman returns his coin to him, and when challenged by the Doctor for this, he says, Sometimes it's only madness that makes us what we are. While he is talking about Harvey's coin, he is also talking about his cowl. Being Batman is what keeps him from falling into full insane despair. He knows it and so does the Joker. The events of this book may make this clear for Bruce, but it's been clear for the Joker all along. It could even be suggested that he orchestrated all of this to give Batman this message, as can be indicated from their exchange when Batman arrives and declares that they are free from the hostage situation. Joker acknowledges that he knows that they have always been free and then asks Batman if he is free. Is he ready to wear his kingly robes, a straitjacket? Has all this been to show Batman that he is as crazy as everyone else? And that's okay. Despite the killing, it's a pretty positive message about mental health from the Joker. Talking of the Joker, Let's have a look at his depiction in this story. The Joker 
the blank slate theory. Since his introduction in 1940, there have been a number of iterations of the Joker. A mischievous bank robber, a crazy fun-loving clown, a sadistic psychopath, and a meticulous planner and manipulator. Each one has been relevant to the era and the story being told. But are they all the same person? Morrison has stated that, yes, they are all the same person. In this book, he mentions his theory for the first time. The notion that the Joker is a blank slate without a fixed personality and that Batman is the only fixed thing in his world. This means that he could wake up any given day and be a different villain. Each one a different challenge to the Batman. This means that each version is valid and just as threatening. Morrison lays out the full theory in his later Batman run, Batman issue 663, The Clown at Midnight. So if the Joker can be different each time, what is his fixed point? This book starts to explore the relationship between Joker and Batman. Joker is like that annoying friend who likes to wind you up but never seems to understand why you get annoyed. He honestly believes they have a connection. Joker knows all the things that trigger Batman. He's able to manipulate Batman through annoyance and rage. The Joker is more emotionally stable than Batman. He knows how to play the game in this version. By the end, the Joker is hoping that the experience has made them closer, brought Batman one step closer to accepting his throne as the king in Arkham. Even as Batman is leaving, he says that there is always a place in Arkham for Batman. The mission of this version of the Joker is simply to toy with Batman and bring him into the fold of the crazies. As I mentioned, Morrison will return to this theory in later runs. This has also been success successfully revisited by another writer as well. Scott Snyder's arc, Death of the Family, shows a Joker whose mission to make Batman better, to make him accept his true role and purpose. This is a very similar version and mission to that shown by Morrison in Arkham Asylum. The Journey Through the Asylum Having discussed Batman and the Joker as characters in this book, let's take a look at the actual journey through the asylum and what I think Morrison is depicting. The journey is reminiscent of so many depicted in legend and literature, whether it be Theseus in the maze of the Minotaur or Alice through the strange lands of Wonderland. The journey changes per person, and it changes a person. In this case, as we have discussed, it's about Batman's acceptance of his insanity and how it defines him. For the purpose of this podcast, I want to highlight three interactions that Batman has during the journey. The first is with the Mad Hatter, who in this version is depicted in a similar way to the smoking caterpillar out of Alice in Wonderland, smoking atop a large mushroom. The exchange isn't subtle and actually highlights what a green writer Morrison is at the time. Hatter comments on how the building itself will affect people, also that there is the potential for order out of chaos through knowledge and age, both commenting on Batman and his relationship with the institution. He finishes by speculating that, the, that Arkham is an illusion and that they are actually in Batman's head and that they are all aspects of his personality. This is hammered home in the last three panels as we pull back to see that Hatter is still in his cell and that the Batman is looking at his reflection in the glass. 
This has been suggested for decades, but Morrison calls it out explicitly. Before he moves on, Batman is being asked to think about what he has created through his actions and putting people into the asylum. This has been the first challenge of the journey, the existential questioning of Batman's purpose and who he is in relation to the inmates. The second is the exchange with Maxi Zeus, who is depicted as an electrified being that is wired into the building and providing it with power. Upon seeing Batman, this trapped and enslaved person offers him power. He believes he is a higher being, or at least he wants to be seen as a higher being. What he actually offers Batman is a bucket of human waste, but he espouses its power and virtue, only for Batman to walk away, leaving Maxi Zeus screaming. This offer from a meta-powered human is the potential of power. While Zeus may be trapped and enslaved, he could actually provide Batman with the power in his war against crime. For Morrison to have shown it as human waste highlights Batman's contempt for these beings. He does not want the power, or is it that he does not believe he could be trusted with the power? Either way, Batman passes a second test. He walks away from the power that could corrupt. The final interaction is that with Killer Croc. In this book, a hulking lizard creature with little to no humanity left. The entire fight happens without any dialogue to show that there is no reasoning with Croc or the monster. In the first few panels, Morrison references Parsifal, the German name for Percival, the Arthurian knight that quested for the Holy Grail and fought monsters. Again, not as subtle as he will be in later writings. He even states in the next boxes, which are texts from Amadeus Arkham's journal, I have only one fear. What if I am not strong enough to defeat it? This is the final challenge, Batman having to prove that he has the fortitude and strength to overcome all obstacles. In this case, Croc represents all villains, all crime in Gotham. To defeat him, Batman takes the spear from the statue of an angel. The association with the grail questing Parseval and the use of the angelic spear represent Batman's perceived virtue. He is on the side of the angels and will always succeed. Each of these interactions challenge an aspect of who Batman is, his purpose for being, his need for control and his physical abilities and virtue. He comes out the end changed and willing to accept the aspects of himself and his enemies that he has fought against for so long. But what about the past and the building that Batman has quested through? Arkham, the man, the building and the evil. So far we have talked at length about the Batman part of the book. However, we cannot forget that this is only one story being told in this book. The book also betrays the life events of Amadeus Arkham, the man who created Arkham Asylum. Before we get into the events, I should highlight that this first part of the Arkham story is the final breakdown of his mother. She is shown eating beetles, which are then described as representing rebirth, foreshadowing the journey of transformation that Batman will take. It also foreshadows the fate of Amadeus and how mental health issues can be passed down from one generation to the next. The idea of transformation for good and bad. Amadeus, having seen the decline of his mother, has compassion for those that suffer from mental health issues. For example, he treats Martin Hawkins, a serial killer, 
with care and comments on how someone with mental health issues will suffer more when trapped in the penal system rather than a care system. It's this interaction that leads to him creating the asylum. It's also the relationship that defines Amadeus's own decline. Having built the asylum, Amadeus continues to treat Hawkins, which results in Hawkins attacking his family and killing his wife and daughter. This is yet another tragedy in the building and is the defining moment that Amadeus and the asylum. While Batman turned his tragedy into a mission to stop crime, Amadeus lets it break him and begins his decline into madness. It's from this point that we get the question of whether all the events that occur are because of the people that are grouped together and their issues, or if the building has some form of sentience and is actually creating these events. This highlights people's need to find an external explanation for things that are affecting them, whether this be natural or supernatural. While Amadeus continues to work and process his grief, he is given another opportunity to treat Hawkins. The earlier Amadeus would have shown compassion for Hawkins as a patient. However, following the events, Amadeus kills Hawkins in an act of revenge, another horrific event linked to the asylum and showing how violence begets violence, and raising further questions as to how much of an effect the building is having on the people inside. The final reveal of this story goes back to the death of Amadeus's mother and can be interpreted in two ways. We see that Amadeus saw what had been tormenting his mother for so long, the spectral figure of a giant bat. In that moment we see a violent act of compassion in which Amadeus kills his mother with a razor. Is this the first act of violence and horror that spawns the rest? I've already posited that the death of his wife and daughter is the trigger point for his decline, that without that it could have been avoided. However, with this reveal, we can now determine that this decline was inevitable and that whatever form it may have taken, some future event would have pushed him over the edge. Now, is this a literal figure of evil that has haunted his mother and the building that will become Arkham Asylum? Or is it a generational mental break, a moment in which both mother and son share a delusion? If we take it as a literal figure of evil, we can tie it to the events in the other story. The idea of the building needing and feeding off the suffering of the inmates. Also, Batman as an avatar of the spectre, creating and collecting the inmates to bring them to the building. Does this add anything to the comments of the Joker at the end about being the king of the crazies? Are these two figures both linked to the evil and are they inevitable? Possibly. We have had mention of the idea of order and chaos from the Mad Hatter. I think it's fair to perceive these as two sides of the same coin, both feeding the asylum entity in different ways. Another supporting view of the symbolism is the suggestion that Morrison is providing of the glimpse of the future, a future in which Batman is a figure to be feared by those with mental illness. That he will show no compassion and will, like the stigma of mental illness, loom over them threatening to tear their lives apart. The other take is that it's a representation of the shared mental illness. The bat figure is the symbol of the illness of mother and son. It represents the fear and confusion it brings on, a creature that lurks in the shadow and brings them down. In either case, the bat is a figure of fear and darkness. In summary, 
Now that we have looked at the elements of the book, I want to finish off with a summary and a short review of what, what I think of this book as a Batman story. In summary, the book is a milestone in the Batman mythology and in comic history. Batman had been pulpy, campy and increasingly gritty, but this was the first time that he had been artistic and truly psychological. In my opinion, more so than The Dark Knight Returns, this book demonstrates how a mainstream superhero character can be used in interesting ways. It also opened up the idea of a psychologically damaged individual under the cowl. It is also a statement of intent from Grant Morrison. Prior to this, he had demonstrated his ability and style in several issues of Animal Man and Doom Patrol, but this is a complete piece that truly shows his talent. However, it's also clear that there is room for improvement. I have issues with this version of Batman. No one this broken could be successful against the biggest threats that come up against Gotham City night after night. Also, at the end of the book, Batman is easily overpowered by one of the Doctors and relies on someone else to save him, not the master of the martial arts that he is presented as in other works. Following this, he lets the main villain be killed. Not a very Batman move at all. So while it is a, this is a great book and puts an interesting slant on a decades-old character and raises some interesting questions, it doesn't stand as an incontinuity story. The best way to read this story is as a thesis on the character, or an Elseworld story. I recommend that any Bat fan read this book to get the full scope of possibilities and make up their own mind. If you have read it, please get in contact and let me know what you think of the book and this version of Batman. As I say, if you want to get in contact about this or any of the Batman stories or anything you think I should be reviewing that's Batman for this year, please get in contact. You can email me at 20thCenturyGeek at gmail.com or you can find me on social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all under 20thCenturyGeek. And I'm really interested to see what other people think about this book. So thank you very much for listening, and if you want to support the show, there are many ways to do this. If you want to show how much you like it, go onto your podcast catcher, iTunes or the others, and leave a five-star review and comment on what you think of the show. If you want to provide uh, some other support, we do have a Patreon page, and we are now doing two regular uh, shows on that. We are doing the uh, Is It Really That Bad, where I'll be reviewing a couple of films every month and looking back at the, the ones that are stigmatised as being very poor and asking, are they really that bad? And we will also be doing a monthly show in which I sit down with my wife who is a pop culture novice and she'll be watching some key moments from pop culture history to get her view on those things. The other thing is 20th Century Geek has an Amazon wish list. And on there are a number of books that will really help with our research. And of course, we love secondhand books in 20th Century Towers. So please check that out. Other than that, just get in contact. Raise the word. Tell your friends about the show. I would really appreciate it. And uh, our Batman reviews will continue in the future. Uh, but next episode will be myself and Julian Darius back talking about Batman and our favourite Batman stories. So remember... We'll be back, same bat time, same bat channel. I'll see you then.